Welcome to the Good Shepherd New York podcast. Good Shepherd New York is a community helping New Yorkers embody the love of Christ for the good of our neighbors. For more information, go to goodshepherdnewyork.com. May you be filled with curiosity, grace, and peace as we listen and learn together through this sacred text. And now a reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for the usual daily wage, he sent them into his vineyard. When he went out about nine o'clock, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you also go into the vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. When he went out again, about noon and about three o'clock, he did the same. And about five o'clock, he went out and found others standing around and he said to them, why are you standing here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you also go into the vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his manager, call the laborers and give them their pay, beginning with the last and then going to the first. When those hired about five o'clock came, each of them received the usual daily wage. Now when the first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received the usual daily wage. And when they received it, they grumbled against the landowner saying, these last only worked one hour and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for the usual daily wage? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this last the same as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do with do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. The Gospel of our Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. And now, having heard our Gospel story, we take a quiet moment to open our hearts to God, to ourselves, and to each other. I invite you to bring who you really are, like how you really think and feel in this moment. That's what makes this moment holy. Whether you have a lot of doubt or trust, whether you have joy or pain or all of the above, bring it authentically. And let's ask God to help us connect this story to ours in a way that makes us more loving. Just a quiet moment is best as you know how to open up. As we take this quiet moment, simply breathe in God's love and imagine God's presence filling your entire being and exhale all anxiety and fear and anger. God of love, open this to your love, to the light which comes through the cracks. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, my wife, Kindy, she asked me, what are you preaching about this weekend? And I told her about the text and that it was coming together more slowly than usual. And then after hearing the parable, she said, I hate that story. 
And when I asked her why, she replied, because it's not fair. And then immediately, without really thinking, I responded, oh, you don't want fair. Our addiction to fair is what leads to the hell of our own making, because we all eventually fall short of the ideals that we hold out for the world and for ourselves. And the payment or the punishment that we're so quick to demand comes back around to bite us in the end. Now, how to reconcile that with our valid desire for justice, that's the crux. And then she smirked like a Jedi master to her Padawan who had just mansplained and said, there's your sermon. So, thank you, Kendi. The story that Jesus tells today is one of surprising generosity. And in many ways, it's continuing to build out a world for us that runs against what we think we want. Right? It runs against the business as usual mentality that we carry with us in our everyday lives. It runs against the calculations and the instincts of the world that we take for granted. This world, which Jesus is calling us out of, we could call it the world of debt keeping or simply what Anand Girdadras calls the market world. Our dilemma is that we often think we can solve our deepest problems without much real change in thinking or doing. Like we're rarely truly open to transformation or to the new world that Jesus is inviting us toward through these parables. There are words attributed to Albert Einstein, and I think they get at the heart of the crux or the dilemma. Quote, no problem can be solved by the same consciousness that caused it in the first place, end quote. So Jesus has been showing through his example and these stories that a new world is possible. It's a world that's marked by forgiveness and reconciliation rather than the bitterness and envy and resentment and violence of the market world. Last week, we saw Jesus calling us into a forgiveness that has no limits, and yet it's not automatic or even easy. Rather, it's something that has to be chosen regularly, almost daily, against our market world instincts to make people pay. And perhaps more important, he's showing us that there's this inner logic to the world of forgiveness. If we withhold it and we refuse to extend it, we're functionally shutting down the valve in our hearts through which we can receive it from God and receive it from others. We often think of them like two valves. You know, I receive through one valve and I offer through another. But Jesus is saying there's only one valve. To withhold forgiveness and instead enact vengeance and retribution, that is to shut ourselves out of God's new world of grace and healing and reconciliation. And instead, it locks us into that hellish existence of bitter fairness calculations. But is there room for justice in God's new world? Is God's new world simply a realm in which the guilty get off without accountability, where the poor and the powerless are taken advantage of or exploited? How do we reconcile this new world of grace and forgiveness that Jesus is exploring here? and that valid concern for justice that we all feel so deeply and also seems to characterize the teaching and the life of Christ himself. Kindy was right. There's our sermon. So I'd like to begin by pointing out a very unique feature to these four parables which Jesus tells consecutively in Matthew's gospel. They're called the judgment parables. And we looked at one last week, the first parable, and today we look at the second 
Now, the feature I want you to pay attention to is that in each case, the main character is referred to explicitly as a man, a man, a king, a man, a landowner, a man, a master. Jesus doesn't want us to cozy up to the main character and then uncritically assign divine attributes to their every move. Rather, Jesus wants us to see these men for what they are, wonderful and terrible. There's an important truth that the story does want to reveal about God, but it won't be found by simply following the cues of the main character's every move. We're going to have to dig deeper than that unless we wind up with a monster god whose tyrannical rule mirrors our egos and our empires. Frankly, that's the God that I see described and depicted and worshiped by many in America right now. In the end, we're all tempted to this. It's convenient because it doesn't require us to change much. It simply requires us to get on its side. Jesus makes these qualifications of calling them a man because the similarity between the main character and God is often at one point only. And sometimes there's almost no similarity whatsoever, and we look elsewhere in the story for that God insight. Now, in today's story, we get one message loud and clear. God's world is not an achievement contest. That's the market world. That's the world that we've made from our ego deficits and our insecurities. The market world is the world of empire. It's of strength and metrics and control. Empire is the world that our egos require because they are afraid and insecure. It's the world that we create when we refuse to let go of control and let love be the center of our lives. Love, genuine love, is truly electrifying and intoxicating. You know this because you've tasted it. Love, in short, is enough. It's all we need. In those moments when we transcend the market world, right? When we feel seen and loved in ways that are beyond the games and the standards and the ideals of our age, we feel this deep meaning and energy. And then comes the important connections, right? When our activity is in line with those loving relationships, when it's connected to the well-being of those relationships, then we experience what the Bible calls shalom, or what's often translated as peace. This is what's behind our desire to work, to create, to enrich the world of loving relationships. It's what we're hoping to restore when we take the risk of forgiveness and the risk of reconciliation. But Jesus understands there's a fundamental problem here. When we taste love and then we turn and become cutthroat to protect it, we wind up losing what we're trying to protect. Because as Jesus teaches, there's only one valve, and that valve is either opening and or closing. And we have to restrict that valve every time we set love aside. Consider how we connect our work to love. We often say we work for noble reasons, right? We work for the families that we love, or for the friends that we love, or ourselves whom we love, or our cities, or some larger cause like our world, all which we love. But the quantity of our work can often give us less time to enjoy and support the people or the planet that we claim to love. And sometimes it's not about quantity of work, it's about quality. The very nature of our work draws out vices in our hearts that close that valve which makes love possible. 
The corporate world can be brutal. I wear the burden that many of you describe to me as you talk about your work. The geopolitical world can be brutal. The hard realities on our streets or in our factories can be brutal. Our religious institutions can be brutal, right? Every industry on this planet has a dark side and we're tempted to lose the point of why we work in the first place. We're tempted to concede to the market world rather than embrace the new world that God's creating. We have a soft spot in our culture for stories of that hard warrior with the soft soul because many of us live that metaphor every day. Some of us are soul sick because we're constantly turning that valve on and off depending on the context and it can be exhausting. It lacks integration and humans can't thrive that way. In our story, the landowner agrees to pay the first wave of workers a denarius. That's simply a day's wage. It's a living wage. It's one that can buy food and wine and pay for the necessary expenses that make life work. The first wave of workers spend the entire day with the security of knowing that they will have enough. But the next several waves, each of them are not as fortunate. They spend varying portions of the day in anxiety and in idleness. They're wondering if there will be bread to eat at the end or perhaps for their families. But each of them is told when they're hired that they will be given what is right. And this, I think, is where the desire for justice intersects with this parable's teaching of grace and generosity. Justice and shalom are deeply connected in the Bible. Think of shalom as a relational term. It has to do with relationships that are connected and that are honored. God, people, planet, all of it. Every time a relationship isn't honored, right? every time a person or the planet is exploited or taken advantage of or neglected, the fabric of shalom is torn. Now in the Bible, justice is seen as the restoration of shalom But this doesn't happen through an algorithm or a metric or a system. It can't be achieved by the market world. It is relational at its core. Now, this parable presents a story where every worker is given enough. That's the truth of our world. And it's the axis upon which we can say this is right. The market world operates on a different axis. It introduces competition and meritocracy. And it adds always to our sense of what is enough. It tempts us to find significance or meaning in distinction or status. And we become addicted to that status or distinction. We feel entitled to it, much like the man at the end of the parable, grumbling that he was paid the same as the rest. Are you envious because I'm generous? That's the question posed to the man at the end. The world that Jesus is calling us into is a world with a generous God who gives humanity in full measure exactly what we need, love. It's the great universal truth underneath all of our lives, and it's accessible to all. But in our addiction to distinction and status and the calculations that make that possible, we become entitled to forms of identity that are more than divine love. We become addicted to meaning that can never electrify the soul the way that love can. And so we wind up missing out on God's new world. The landowner tells the worker, take what is yours and go on. God's new world 
invites us to take what is ours, the enough that God has given each of us, and move on, right? Move on into the world with an open heart, with gratitude to share and to connect and to be who God made us to be. Don't let envy rule you with its illusion that what you have isn't enough and its addiction to comparison, which is the thief of joy. The only thing that can create true justice in our world is the human heart with the valve open. And when we get sucked into envy and comparison, we close off the valve. We undermine the very thing that we desire because of how we go about getting it. Right? Justice is the restoration of shalom. This is spiritual and it's material. And I'm afraid that many have made it exclusively material and they lack the spiritual core to see relationships honored and restored, to see real reconciliation take place rather than those seesaw moments of retribution and revenge. Because the spiritual core of love is lacking, accountability just looks like retribution and justice becomes revenge. But others have made it exclusively spiritual and they focus on the human heart and spirit to the neglect of material realities. They fail to see that everyone doesn't have enough and that the reasons that so many uh, have far more than they need is because they lack the spiritual core to be content with what is necessary and to live in mutuality and generosity with all. Now, you probably have a sense of which direction you're tempted. Right? This parable reminds us that this justice of God happens when all have enough because there is a spirituality of generosity at the core. Because we share, because we honor, because we respect. May God give us the courage to consider where we're tearing apart shalom right now. May God give us the courage to consider where we prosper because shalom has been torn. May God open the valve of our hearts when we want to close it down in retaliation or revenge because we don't feel we have enough or we feel that something has been taken from us. May God give us the reconciliation that we greatly need. And may we learn to take that leap of holy evolution together. I think our species is ready for it and we need it now more than ever. Would you humbly pray for me and I'll pray for you. Let's pray for our city and for our world that we would be sort of agents in this new world of God's grace and forgiveness that produces true justice and that we'd be softened as we pursue justice by love. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Good Shepherd New York podcast. Good Shepherd New York is an interdenominational church centered around the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. Our church is theologically rooted in the Apostles and Nicene Creeds, but we welcome people of any or no religious backgrounds to participate in our community. If you would like to support us, please text Good Shepherd NY, all lowercase with no spaces, to 77977. That's Good Shepherd NY to 77977. Or visit our website, goodshepherdnewyork.com. Thank you for listening.